We come now to Revelation 17 and 18, the judgment of, of Babylon. And the point I want to bring out is that what we're reading here, in its first century context, was radical. This would have been forbidden literature. This was absolutely subversive of the Roman Empire. And it's no less radical for us in our last days, we also who are living at the end of an age, and we believe around the time when the Lord Jesus will return and finally judge the latter-day Babylon. And the call for separation is just as absolutely radical in our day as it was then. So, Revelation 17 makes clear that this beast which the, uh, the prostitute rides is full, verse 4, of blasphemous names. Um, <clears throat> sorry, verse, uh, verse 3, full of names of blasphemy. Now, what are these names of blasphemy? Well, in the Roman Empire at this time, there was the, the cult of Caesar worship. And everywhere you read things like, Caesar is Lord. That was the, the motto, really, of the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. Uh, Caesar is our Lord and our only Saviour. Caesar is God. Things like that. And all these titles of Caesar are alluded to in the New Testament. At the end of Jude, for example, we read uh, about Jesus, our Lord and only Saviour. There's only one Lord, 1 Corinthians 8, only one Lord, only one Saviour. Well, we may read that fairly painlessly and think, yeah, sure, one Lord, one Saviour, yep, Jesus. But in the Roman Empire, there was one Lord and one Saviour continually written on inscriptions, coins, all over the place. And that one Lord and Saviour was Caesar. So... This is a radical call, and we may say that, yes, we also accept that there is only one Lord and Saviour. And yet, in the world in which we live, there are a huge number of things which claim to be Lord and Saviour. The Lord of wealth and acquisition of wealth. The Lord of career. The, the Lord of personal pleasure, etc., and there's all sorts of things that appear to be our saviour, particularly money, which is, uh, and, you know, personal wealth, which has attracted to itself a meaning in our individualised sort of societies in which we live, quite unprecedented in any previous age. And the call is radical, that there is only one Lord and only one saviour in the end. Now, I want to emphasize that whatever other inter interpretation Revelation may have, be it continuous historic, be it a, a totally futuristic view whereby it all comes true only in the very last three and a half years of the tribulation, it seems to me that it cannot be denied that it all has relevance to the situation in the first century, relevance to those who first heard it. And I think... Uh, verse 7 um, and then verses 9 and 10 really make this uh, very clear. When we, we, we read in, uh, in verses 9 and 10, it's particularly clear in the RV, that the seven heads are seven mountains, and these are, the RV says, seven kings. Five have fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short space. Now, the first 
five Caesars of Rome had come and gone at the time John was writing. That's Julius, not Julius Caesar, uh, Augustus, Tiberius, Gaius, Claudius. And the sixth, Nero, was alive when John, I suggest, was given the Apocalypse. And after him there came Galba, who reigned just seven months, from June 68 to January 69. And that just fits so well. Uh, and the order of the Caesars are, are given is taken from, from standard works, uh, for, from Suetonius, Lives of the Caesars, uh, Dio Cassius, Roman History, Josephus, uh, Antiquities. It, there's no question that this is, the, is really the case. And Revelation was written, therefore, in the context of the persecution of Christians by Nero. And that's why the document is so radical, because it keeps on alluding to Nero worship and the Roman Empire in these very dramatic terms like prostitute, whore, etc. And you've got again in, in verse um, 8 here, the beast that you saw uh, was and is not uh, and then it seems to disappear but then it, it ascends and, and it uh, returns to life uh, and you've got that picked up again um, in other parts of, um, of Revelation where you've got this idea of the beast having a deadly wound and being healed of that and I think that might refer to the, uh, the murder of Julius Caesar and then the healing of the empire under Augustus um, and, and the idea of um, e even Nero Redivivus whereby Nero was believed to have returned from the dead. So all these are allusions to what was going on right there in the first century. But the point has been made by Harry Whitaker and, and others that the description of Babylon that we've got here uh, in chapters 17 and 18 is shot through with allusions to Old Testament prophecies which talk about Jerusalem and the apostate Jewish system. Um, double unto her double, this is out of Jeremiah 16:18. the sound of the millstone will no longer be heard in her, Jeremiah 25:10. in her was found the blood of the prophets, uh, Jesus Luke 11.50, the blood of all the prophets was re required of Jerusalem in AD 70. Of course, uh, the great whore, verse 1 of this chapter 17, uh, Ezekiel 16 and 23, Jeremiah 2 and 3, and Hosea really calling apostate Israel a, a prostitute. And she has upon her forehead, as it were, on her mitre, a name written. It's a parody of of God's name that was written on the high priestly mitre. She's drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's the first century martyrs who were killed really by, by the Jews. Uh, the habitation of demons. Jesus says, Matthew 12, 43 to 45, that it's as if he has cleansed Israel of her demons, but they return sevenfold because they refuse to repent. Uh, and so well, one, could, uh, one could go on that there's a lot of allusions here to um, Israel and particularly to the Jewish system in, in Jerusalem. 
in her was found the blood of the prophets. Jesus said, Luke 13, 33, a prophet never perished outside Jerusalem. Babylon is the great city, and that's defined for us in Revelation 11, 8, uh, as the city where Jesus was crucified, that is Jerusalem. Now, what's the point of all this? Clearly, the beast system is Babylon, is, uh, is Rome in the first century, but it's also Jerusalem. And I think the point of that is that if we deny Jesus, and yet we appear to still be God's people, and in a sense we still are, then we are no better than the world, and we will be judged with the world at the last day. And so, that's why, if we do not separate from the world now, we will be treated like the world in the last days. We've read here in Revelation 18, uh, 21, that a great millstone is thrown into the sea, and thus, with violence, shall that great city Babylon be thrown down. But Jesus uses that language in uh, Luke 17, 2, when he says that whoever makes his brother stumble should have a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the sea. He's using the very same language about the destruction of Babylon as he is about the destruction of people within the household, within the people of God, apostate Jerusalem. And if you make your brother stumble, then that's who you are. You are no better than Babylon. That's what he's saying. And just thinking that one through, I mean, we really should be extremely sensitive, therefore, in how we behave towards our brother and sister, uh, knowing that really by doing anything that makes another to stumble from the way. And this is particularly true of interpersonal argument, uh, of even when we're in the right, uh, handling that in, in the wrong way, let alone the, the terrible practice of, of disfellowshipping people. This is what makes people stumble. This is what really is no better than all the evils of Babylon that we have here. Now, we read there in Revelation 18, uh, 15 and uh, 19 about her torment, her, her weeping uh, and wailing, um, this uh, gnashing of teeth. That is exactly the language of the rejected within the household. In Matthew 25:30, the rejected will weep and gnash their teeth, weep and wail. Why? Because they will share the judgment of Babylon. Now, in Daniel 4, you've got this idea of Babylon like a tree, which was cut down in judgment. And Jesus uses the very same language in Matthew 7:19, when he says that, again, the rejected amongst his own people will be cut down like a tree. Babylon, of course, is burnt with fire, verse 8 of chapter 18 here, just like the rejected will be, Matthew 13, verse 40. So, therefore, the punishment for those within the household who make their brother to stumble, those who act like the world now, their punishment, their judgment, will be to simply go back into the world and be treated like Babylon. And Luke 12:46, I think, is significant in this connection, that the unwatchful servant the, and the hypocrite will be cut asunder 
and given their place of condemnation with the unbelievers. Go back into the world. That's what's being said. You are Babylon, you acted in essence like Babylon, so go back and be with them. Jesus says that we either fall upon him and are broken, he's like a stone, and you either fall upon him and are broken in your realization of your own sinfulness, this is Matthew 21:44, or he, as the stone, will fall upon you and grind you to powder. Now, of course, when he says that, he's referring to Daniel 2.34, that the image which stands, in that sense, complete in the last days, headed up by the head of gold, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, as it were, king of Babylon, that was hit by the stone, which is Jesus, and ground to powder. And Jesus says that's what will happen to you, unless you repent. And in all this we see a connection with the breaking of bread, because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that we must examine ourselves and judge ourselves. If you would judge yourself, he said, you will not be condemned with the world. And so, as we think of Jesus there, dying for us on the cross, we, if we're doing it properly, we will have elicited within us a very deep sense of our own sinfulness, our own wrongness, our own uh, condemnation, how we ought to be condemned. And yet we will also, from, as it were, the, the same picture, the same reality of Jesus crucified, we will get this great comfort that I am not condemned, although I should be. In the language of Romans, we who should be condemned are not just let off, but we are declared right, we are justified, in a legal sense, because we really are in Christ. So then, there must be a separation between us and this world now. And if there is not, then we simply will be thrown back into this world and we will share Babylon's judgments. So often we have heard the call for separation from the world. And it's all become a bit old hat. Uh, certainly if you brought up how, how I was or in the environment in which I was, you know, chewing gum was a sin because that's what the world does. And this kind of silly, kind of tokenistic uh, separation from the world uh, has maybe made us think that it's all a load of nonsense. And uh, I guess the, the brethren who uh, pushed those kind of ideas, um, they had sort of misplaced ideals, and they were wrong in one sense, but in another sense they were not completely wrong. I mean, they were wrong about chewing gum, but... Um, the idea being that really and truly we we must be separate from this world that is in John's terms light and darkness uh, and that is as simple as it is but of course separation from the world does not mean you know just tokenistic separation that we've got to be in this world in the same way as the Lord Jesus was so intensely human um, in order to save the world. But there is a crucial difference. The people with whom we mix, uh, the unbelievers, these people are not, for the most part, going to live forever. And yet, those who have believed in Christ and are covered in him, they will live forever. And so, this is the, the crucial difference which there is. And 
of course our whole way of being is so different to that which there is in this world because we, we do have a, a completely different set of principles by which we live the separation of light and darkness was fundamental in the, in the Genesis creation that's alluded to all the way through the Bible really that separation which there must be but I think it's a mental separation a separation which comes naturally that these people are not going to live forever but I will what makes it so uh, difficult I, I think for some anyway or maybe when we're first baptized where it gets uh, difficult is because this world poses as a fake kingdom of God you see in chapter 17 verse 18 Babylon is called that great city which reigns the Greek basilia over the kings of the earth <clears throat> but that idea of a basilia a reigning a kingdom a kingship over the kings of the earth that's normally used about God's kingdom so Babylon is a fake kingdom of God when Jesus talked about how his kingdom, even in this life, was going to be like a little seed that's sown and then it grows up into a great tree with great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. That's Mark 4.32. He was actually quoting from the description of the kingdom of Babylon in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was like a big tree with big branches and the birds of the air lodged under the shadow of it so what he's saying is that his true kingdom is the true kingdom and yet the kingdom of Babylon is a fake kingdom and all around us we see that but there is a semblance even of spirituality which can easily be deceptive we are to separate from that but it is all a, a natural realisation I think this will all be brought to its kind of climax in the call to leave Babylon in the very last day because come out of her my people Revelation 18 verse 4 this is very much the, the call for Lot to come out of Sodom and in fact the description of Sodom here is sorry, the description of Babylon here in chapter 17 and 18 is full of allusion to Sodom in chapter 17 verse 2 I'll show you the judgment of the great whore this is like God showing Abraham the judgment of Sodom um, her sins, verse 5 of chapter 18 her sins have reached unto heaven God has remembered her iniquities well, that's Genesis 18, 20 and 21 the cry of Sodom is great because their sin is very grievous and the cry of it has come up unto me chapter 18, verse 7 she's glorified herself and lived deliciously Ezekiel 16:49 says the sin of, Babylon, uh, sin of Sodom was pride and fullness of bread verse 8 chapter 18, utterly burned with fire Sodom means burning um, the great city great Babylon this is the city of Sodom um, back in chapter 16 verse 21 the reference to men having a great hail falling upon them out of heaven where the Lord rained upon Sodom fire and brimstone out of heaven 
Here in chapter 18, 9 and 10, they shall see the smoke of her burning standing afar off. Well, that's Abraham, surely, standing far off and seeing the smoke of Sodom's burning ascending. Her smoke rose up, chapter 19, verse 3. In Genesis 19:28, the smoke of the country around Sodom went up. And of course the casting of Babylon down into the sea with a great millstone around its neck as it were in verse 21 of chapter 18 well that's Sodom now submerged in the Dead Sea. So then the call to come out of her my people this is the call to Lot and his wife to come out. But that final call when the angel actually stands there and says sort of Jesus is back (laughs) this is it and we realize this is it. Or even if we've fallen asleep in the Lord and we're resurrected, and then we come to and we realize, well, this is it. Do you want to go immediately? I mean, according to the uh, parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the key issue in our eternal destiny is how we react to that call. He's back. Go to meet him. And the foolish say, ah, yeah, coming, but not right now. If we have a real heart for God and for the Lord, and if in this life we have separated from this world, we will want to go immediately. This will be our heart's desire, that Jesus should come back, and we want to be with him. And, you know, remember Lord's wife, she who looked back, clearly looking back at her kitchen and her patio and family and and all that she had uh, materially, and that meant more to her, sadly, than the call to go, go forward. And what happened to her? She was turned into a pillar of salt. But that is effectively what happened to the land all around Sodom. It was turned to salt. She shared their judgment because her heart was with them. This is, this is where it is so crucial to keep a very loose hold on all that is around us in this life. And of course, it all comes together, as we've alluded to already in 1 Corinthians 11, in the breaking of bread. That there we have, here in this bread and wine, the symbol of the fact that he died for me. And if we perceive that, as Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world, that in his death, there was the judgment of this world and there was our judgment we have to respond by saying sure I should be condemned but by your grace I have been saved we died in baptism we said yes I'm a sinner, sin brings death but we didn't stay under the water we came up out of it to share in his resurrection life and although we shall die humanly speaking in this life yet the Lord will come He who shall come will come. And by his grace we really will live eternally in his true kingdom. And therefore there is quite naturally that absolute separation from this world and also, unlike Lot's wife, a very light hold on all the material things of this world which pass through our hands. That's all that it's all about. They're just passing through our hands. And when the Lord comes, if the fact that he died for me, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, 
if that really has touched our very soul, then the only thing we want, even if like the foolish virgins we think, oh no, I'm really not as I should be to meet him, but he loves me more than I love him, but okay, all I want to do is to be with him. If that is our spirit, then we will decide quite rightly and correctly all the passing issues of this life.